Hello and welcome to the GamesIndustry.biz podcast. I'm Rebecca Valentine and I'm joined today by... Matthew Handrahan. Brendan Sinclair. And Hayden Taylor. We're here, as always, to discuss the latest games industry news and headlines, starting with UK developer Automaton Games, which entered administration earlier this week after having to shut down its 1,000-player battle royale game Mavericks, Proving Grounds. Unfortunately, this is the second game to close that used improbable spatial OS, following Bossa Bossa Studios' termination of Worlds Adrift back in May. Um, Improbable actually today came out with a statement saying it would help Automaton employees find new roles um, with their company. Um, so first off, best wishes to everyone affected. Hope Improbable is able to accommodate all or as many of them as possible. Um, second, this is not a great year to be doing things with Improbable, is it? Like between these two closures, plus the whole back and forth in January with Improbable and Unity, it's just not a lot of positive news, huh? No, well, I, I think they're, they're slightly different cases in that uh, Bossa actually brought product to market and Automaton had yet to realize it's, what's it called, Mavericks? I think that's what it was called. Mm. Um, Mavericks, yeah. pro- Proving uh, Ground. Mavericks colon Proving, Proving Grounds, Grounds yes. Right. And I talked to Automaton about this maybe a couple of years ago, and it's all uh, all very ambitious, all very um, futuristic in like the technology. and I, 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 I forget what the individual claims were, but it was like you would have a thousand players and the battleground would be larger than like the largest battleground ever by like a hundred times and individual blades of grass would be trampled underfoot and you'd be able to track people and all this kind of stuff. It all sounded very high-minded and far-fetched and not necessarily like it would actually end up making a better game than ones that already exist. But then I think that was kind of a oh, yeah. common thing with improbable products for me. I mean, bar- barring a couple of examples, but you know, it's, um, I, I, I was never. I always wondered a little bit whether what Improbable was selling, as well funded as it, as it was, would actually lead to much new, uh, rather than just larger versions of the same made by a few fewer numbers of people. And what we've had, particularly in the last six months, is evidence that, at least for me, and Automaton closed before the product came out. But my feeling with Bossa was. Okay, like a smaller studio was able to make a larger product, but ultimately making a large product and running a large product are two very different things. Um, and so for a game like Worlds Adrift to actually keep operating, Bossa wasn't able to do it. You know, it was unable to realize its vision to a degree that made it a game that people actually wanted to play, and the upkeep of that game was beyond their grasp. So Improbable allows people to make these huge things, but actually making a huge thing comes with a great deal of responsibility and it carries a lot of weight and evidently not every company can keep up with it. Yeah, I think that's the uh, that's the that's the thing with improbable. It's like it it has this this vast potential which developers then kind of scramble and gather all their resources to then try and actually meet. But like I mean game development is so expensive already and the thought of you know having something where individual bra- blades of grass have like object permeance within a battle royale gra- game it like it like I said it sounds very high minded but a like who is that really for and b like the resources required surely to make something that of that level of detail must just be absolutely staggering this is something that i I always find it a red flag when I hear people talk about a new feature or a new thing they're doing that sounds really cool, and then they say, we can't wait to see what developers Mm -hmm. do with it. (laughs) And because it suggests to me that you don't really have an idea for what should be done with this. And 
improbable always kind of i'm not sure if they ever use those exact words but it always sort of fit into that space for me yeah there's um, a big difference when, right between saying between seeing a problem that developers are having like a really specific thing that exists or seeing having an idea for something they could make and seeing a barrier to that and trying to fix that and then just kind of making things bigger and more dramatic for the sake of making things bigger and more dramatic and then hoping things work out yeah like the the tech is cool but it's not the tech itself is not like a compelling user yeah i, I had more faith i think in what bossa was doing purely because bossa is quite a creative company in terms of how they think about game ideas and game design um when the when i met with automaton i left with the impression of a company that was founded and operated by people who were very very technically capable but I, I did feel like they were exclusively coming at it from that point of view. I actually think the the co-founders of the company worked on RuneScape at Jagex, and what they were really good at was like distributed networking. That was their area of specialty, not building you know interesting mechanics, distributed networking. So they had this. Again, this is my subjective kind of takeaway from the the conversations I did have with them. They had this idea for how you could do a cool distributed network, not how you could bring uh, technology that makes that simpler to bear on interesting game design. So, but, but again, we, the thing with Automaton, they are different cases. It's hard to know exactly what, what went wrong with Automaton because they never got their product out there. Um, and the question it raises is, is it because of funding? Is it because spatial OS, the improbable technology, is kind of difficult to use or maybe isn't quite as simple? Because improbable was... Improbable sales pitch, certainly in the early days and, and as it progressed as well, was that we make it much more simple to do these complicated games. Um, and if, I don't know, is there a single, maybe there's a couple of Spatial OS games still on the market, but certainly one closed, to like uh, Worlds Adrift and, and um, Maverick's Proving Grounds were easily two of the most high profile and one has closed down and one will never be seen. To be fair, they did specify um, in their uh, their statement that it was due to insufficient insufficient fun funding. But I think the problems that you suggested as other potentials are also still possible. They could have just ultimately led to yeah, exactly. Funding. So it's that thing of like, was it was their funding sufficient because it took them longer to make the game than they anticipated? Um, but there's there's different ways funds can run out. Was it bad management? I mean, I, I'll say this that. Um, in talking to uh, Spatial OS developers, uh, that, and you know, this is just reading between the lines and it, it's, it's slightly speculative. I think it was widely accepted that there were some teething issues with working with Spatial OS, particularly in the early days, um, and that it wasn't like the, the, the simplest thing to do, but what it was trying to do was quite complicated and it was a work in progress. And I think that. Uh, one a very good way of kind of workshopping that technology is to have people work with it, and that's kind of what game developers were doing. They were working in tandem with Improbable to improve Spatial OS as they went. Um, I do wonder whether we're seeing examples of games that kind of got caught up in that a little bit. Does anyone, kind of based on what we all you know know about Improbable and you know the the potential of it, th does it? really appeal to anyone here like the things that it can do because i mean i'm I, I have to say sort of honestly a lot of what improbable promises is not the sort of thing i look out for in a game and 
I think it's a very like sort of fun, glossy selling point for people. But I just wonder to what extent it's really kind of practical, or to what extent it's actually really kind of appealing to you know the actual the person playing the game. Like I said, you know, like grass being trodden down permanently in a battle royale game sounds you know like a technical achievement but what does it really bring to the experience and that's kind of the thing i see with improbable is i see really really ambitious stuff but i don't it's always seems ambitious in really quite sort of like technical or arbitrary ways rather than sort of fun engaging or inventive ways so i'm just wondering what uh, other people's views are on if you're that. asking me personally i mean you're asking the wrong person because i play you know little tiny indie games nintendo games i don't care about grass being trodden down but i think you know watching big shows like e3 and kind of seeing the reactions from the people who are interested in those kinds of games and you know seeing the interest in battle royale which we will definitely get to later um just using that particular thing as an example you know g- multiplayer games where you can just smash a ton of people into this big space or that have you know games that have really intricate graphic detail i mean that that is the kind of thing that people get really excited about and and talk about and i I don't know if that necessarily translates to it ultimately being fun and selling well and having a long tail, but I know that just kind of if, if they had come out with a trailer for something like that and people saw it at a big venue and, you know, heard about what it could do at kind of a large scale, then, yeah, I think people would get excited about it. Yeah, I, I think, I, yeah, so I, I just, uh, just based on what Rebecca was saying there, I, I don't, I, I, I think that's like the low-hanging fruit for people that make games, you know? been playing games for an awful long time, writing about them for, for rather a long time. And, and the fact of the matter is, make you know, make it bigger and more realistic is kind of one of the laziest ways to be creative and to iterate on something. You know, it's not... But it works. Well, no, no, it works. No, but, but this is the thing. I don't think it does. Works doing what? I don't think it works to get a game to sell. I don't believe that at all. I think you saw a lot of news stories about Mavericks when it was like, this is going to be 1,000-player Battle Royale, but... Not really a great deal after that. It it had a few bullet points that raised eyebrows, but after that, I think is what I mean. What what you're saying, Rebecca, I think is right. Like, does that lead to sales? Does that lead to it being fun or or appealing in the way that actually matters? That makes a game a hit. And what you're saying, Hayden, like, are is what they're doing there actually basically just kind of like arbitrary details that no one's really asked for? It, was anyone who was playing PUBG thinking what would make this game better would be 950 additional players and and the fact that the, the, the tree bark damage could tell me which way someone went um they, i mean this this was their pick you know this was well i mean that one being slightly you know facetious there but this is kind of a i i talked to them about it i had them i had uh, i had this kind of demo experience and this is what they they were pushing on these details and i think that makes you go oh well you can do that but it doesn't make me think wow i really want to play that um so yeah, yeah, it's novelty. It technology is really great for introducing novelty that that people can um, get into a game because of. Like, I remember uh, the Minority Report game. I think there was a demo disc. I can't even remember what system it was on. Maybe PS2, but it was like one of the first games that um, that I played that that really leaned hard into ragdoll physics and. I spent hours with that demo of the game just throwing people into coffee tables and stuff and laughing like a sadistic twit the entire time. Um, But yeah, I didn't buy the game. 
I had the demo and I played it and a few hours of that was enough to get it out of my system. So like novelty is great for uh, getting people's attention, maybe getting them to give something a try. But if, if your game doesn't have anything really supporting it beyond that, um, it's not going to. It's not going to work. I do think it kind of depends on the context, right? Like, we're not we're not specifically talking about Maverick. We're talking about just Improbable's capabilities in general. And I'm thinking about, like, two things that we've kind of seen in the last couple of years. So, like, Borderlands 3 is on its way. And I think Borderlands 3, just by title alone, is not a game that has to work super hard to sell itself. But one of their promises was something like, and I'm not quoting this, right? It was, like, like, like over a billion guns or over a million guns. Just an absurd amount of guns. And that was something that, like, like they threw out there. And people got excited about that. And that's, like, a, a weird PR talking point that people latched onto and thought was a fun idea and you know made a big fuss about so so in that sense like expanding something making it just seem huge and and ridiculous is something that some people who buy games are interested in i think if borderlands 3 was not the game that it was though and some game that no one had ever heard of just kind of came out there and said yeah we've got over a billion guns maybe people wouldn't care um, similarly, like thinking back to details in Uncharted 4 that people got really excited about, like that was a game with a lot of really nice visual detail. Um, the whole thing with the puddles in Spider-Man. I mean, it, it kind of depends like on what the game is and who's selling it to you to a degree. But I do think that for the right game, um, what Improbable has in Spatial OS could be something where just making things bigger and more detailed could be appealing. Yeah, but I, yeah, so but I think in that sense, I, I do agree with that. But I think the whole Borderlands billions of guns or whatever—that is kind of what Maverick, what Automaton was doing. That's what that's what Spatial OS is like. So Spatial OS um, probably raised a lot of money for Spatial OS. They didn't do it because of its applications for games. They they see this technology being applicable in like you know, social infrastructure and with governments and things like that. Like, games is one application of it, and it's the most obvious one, and it's the one that will help them to make raise awareness around the product. But Herman Narula, the, the CEO and founder, has never had it, made any uh, illusions around the fact that he sees this going much, much wider than games. And um, one way of interpreting what Spatial OS can do is a thousand-player battle royale, right? But there are many others, and so, so like I think a World's Drift by Bossa was nowhere near as bombastic in what it was promising. Um, and there's another game, the, the game that I think is actually the most interesting, and I will caveat this by saying I don't think it's a game I would ever play, but I do think it's it's an interesting idea. It's one being made by a company called Clang, uh, which is started by some XCCP people. They're making a game called Seed, and uh, basically when they were all at CCP, one of them used to be the lead server architect. So again, you have that sort of technology influence mindset at play but they do did do one of co-founders is very design focused a very creative guy um but basically their dream game was what if you took the level of simulation we're doing with eve online and implied it to the sims so you have a social uh simulation not like a trading spaceship one but about people and societies and stuff but with the depth and detail of an eve online so you have like a, a, a family of humans in terms of a colony of humans. You get to design the social structures, the political structures. You get to set the laws, um, things like this. Right? So it's well, it's an interesting game to read about for sure. There's plenty of articles out there around it. Um, but I think that again, that raises the question of that. That for me is a more interesting way to take what you can do with spatial OS. But it raises the question of it. Did anyone want that version of The Sims, or is it just one that's possible? 
So another company that's not had a great look this week is Rockstar. Uh, investigative think tank Tax Watch UK claims that Rockstar has not paid UK corporation tax in 10 years. Uh, Hayden, you wrote the story for us, and you probably know at least marginally more about UK tax things than the podcast Resident American. Can you explain what's going on here? So, yeah, so uh, Tax Watch UK, they, they found that Rockstar... Uh, they 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 called they referred to it as Rockstar Games, but that's that's a little bit inaccurate. It's more just the the collection of different Rockstar offices in the UK, uh, and the Take Two ones as well. And between 2013 and 2018, uh, those seven companies based in the UK declared a total pre-tax profit of just 37 sorry, of just 47.3 million pounds for five years. And this is the know the company that bought grand theft auto 5 to market and is the most successful entertainment product of all time and (laughs) (laughs) so they the what kind of sits at the like the center of all this is that um rockstar has basically been claiming that its profit is based in the u.s or based elsewhere rather than the uk despite the fact that you know GTA 5 was developed by Rockstar North, developed in the UK, so it should be paying tax proportional to that. Um, and it has paid some corporation tax over the last 10 years, but because of the way tax works, if you overpay tax, you then get a rebate. So over the last 10 years, it's paid tax and then got it <laughs> got it refunded and then paid a little bit more and then got it refunded. And over the last 10 years, what's ultimately happened is it's balanced out as zero. Um, and... <laughs> All the while this has been happening, it has it has claimed for forty two million pounds of video game tax relief, uh, which it hasn't received all of. Uh, it hasn't received most of, in fact, uh, but it has claimed for that much in tax relief. So, the real kind of kicker to the story is basically that Rockstar has developed <laughs> developed one of the the most successful entertainment product of all time in the UK, paid. Z- basically zero tax on that endeavor and all the while has been trying to pocket uk taxpayer money to offset its (laughs) offset its its tax bill the really funny part about this for me was the fact that um it's getting a video game tax relief um for passing a british cultural test and i know there's like i know you guys were talking about it there's a whole bunch of different things that go into that but the idea that grand theft auto 5 is like a very distinctly british game is sort of funny to me yeah i mean they, yeah they, yeah as you as you refer to rebecca there there are ways of part, passing that cultural test that, have, that don't actually relate to what's on screen when you play it but uh, i mean it, it's a it's an odd situation actually the it's kind of sad to say it, but you know the 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 idea of a huge, huge and profitable company not really paying very much tax is hardly a new one in this day and age. But I think for me, the the part that really kind of uh, lingers is the fact that forty two million pounds in this in a government tax scheme that people fought very, very hard for for years and years and years, and that really is designed to help out small company. I mean. It's, you know, it's supposed to help out bigger companies or incentivize companies to locate here and stuff as well. But it's just supposed to generally encourage production of games right across the board. Um, to have, you know, roughly similar amounts of money on, on the side of how much money they've got from the government and how much money they've been willing to say that they've actually made in profit. Well, clearly, it is orders of magnitude greater than the number that, they, that, they, that they've said. Yeah, it does sort of stick in the craw a little bit. 
Yeah, that, that 42 million, that's 19% of all video game tax credits given out to the British games industry since it was introduced in 2014. So that Rockstar has accounted for nearly a fifth of all of that money. That is that is just sort of appalling. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, it's taking the piss, really, isn't it? Yeah, like every <laughs> honestly, because the, these these uh, tax incentives are, I mean, they're they're contentious in in a lot of markets where where the you know countries or states provinces have adopted them, and things like this really kind of give. Um, opponents to these tax credits all kinds of of ammunition to to point out like hey this is not really necessary it's not achieving the stated goals of of the legislation it is you know helping out large companies that already aren't paying taxes on this And, and it's it's kind of like we have a few you know bad actors or, or people that are abusing the system um even if it's you know completely by the letter of the law in in uh even if it's completely complying with the letter of the law and that works for them but you know it, it kind of uh spoils or could spoil it for for the larger yeah. industry i mean i think that is the concern isn't it because I must say that the, the negative response I've largely seen is that does seem to relate to uh, video game tax relief more than it does a uh, company not paying taxes. But what Brendan says is right. I mean, the, the smaller companies that are going to be claiming against tax relief, they're definitely going to pay their tax in the UK. Um, they're going to take money from the government. They're going to put money back into the government. And that's kind of how this is all supposed to work. And And when it comes down to how people lobby the government for the interests of the video games industry, how much tax that industry pays is hugely important. And, I mean, it, it's hard to get a clear idea of exactly how much money Grand Theft Auto V and the online, you know, side project of that has made over in this period of time. But, I mean, it's, it boggles the mind to even attempt to get a grasp on that figure and to see so little money going back in to the to, to to the country and, and the and you know representing the industry where it was made, it, it does uh, yeah as Brendan says it does make you wonder whether or not this kind of just subverts the entire purpose of what all this is for in the first place. Like Canada has the um, the Canada Media Fund, or Canadian Media Fund, and it, it it supports just a ton of of indie games, and and makes a lot of uh, a lot of them sort of viable when they might not be otherwise. And I. I I love government support for the arts, but when I see, you know, something like this, this rock star situation come up, um, that's, that's not really, that's not really the arts that, that need the government assistance. I don't think. Right. Like the idea of government support for the arts is that, you know, arts are struggling a little bit, but they're also culturally important. So, you know, it's good for the government to support them. It's, it's not intended necessarily for, extremely rich companies that are making plenty of money without any trouble so that's actually something that i'm i'm curious about with um is is, are the uk tax relief things there's the cultural component and it seems like that would be sort of a government support for the arts intention but also just like let's you know 
let's facilitate having a, a growing tech industry here will benefit the entire economy is sort of that that separate motivation yeah, well, we um i think we had a conversation about this the other day i i think the word cultural is the wrong word to use to represent what it does and what it's for because cultural gives an impression that you know it's like it's like a video game version of you know a Hugh Grant movie or something like that. Like it's not. It doesn't have to be about British people. It doesn't have to represent British values. It doesn't have to do any of that stuff. Um, there are indie developers who make purely abstract video games that pass the cultural test because it's about who's working on it. You know how many hours in which country. Very logistical, practical matters that really had zero to do with culture, unless culture means where you come from. Um, so, yeah. The- it's, it works off basically a points-based system, and I think you need like 16 out of a possible 31 points, um, and I think you can get all of those points if you do it with like British actors, British characters, British themes, um, and like in English. I think you get three points for it being in English, so I mean that's a pretty easy win. Um, but then there's also about 16 points worth of stuff based on where it's produced. Um, are yeah, based you on kind of who's working on it. Are you exploiting British yeah. TV testers? Mm. How, how many un- yeah, exactly. unpaid you know, British testers? You, you do get bonus you. points. Oh, for... <laughs> so it's more of a business incentive than a, well, it's, a culturally artsy. It's about nurturing a thriving British industry, really. And and like bear in mind that when all of this stuff was introduced, Britain Britain's... Uh, triple a industry had been decimated over a period of years like britain when this when this hit britain was in a was a was a country of you know small teams um it's really that's who this for what it isn't for is for huge companies that are spread across multiple countries but can move money around um and do things like not pay enough tax basically this is that's not who it's for right but then that's kind of consistent across so many different industries now. Like these huge companies can be creative enough with money that they don't really look like they're actually making any money at all. So that was one thing which I basically picked up off HMRC when I spoke to them, and they said half of large UK businesses are currently under investigation <laughs> for tax purposes. Um, <laughs> half of them. <laughs> it's the entire country. <laughs> That's a horrifying thought. It's like it, it's like they're not even. They're, it's like they're not even yeah. pretending anymore. They're just like, yeah, we don't really pay tax. What are you going to do? There's so many of us not paying. Yeah, exactly. Tax I mean, because the government so. simply does um, not have the resources <laughs> to track them all down or to, to devote enough time to them. And I guess that's why this stuff is coming as much from tax watches anywhere else. Um, but yeah. So that actually leads into the question I was going to ask. Do you think there's going like like is is anything going to amount from this? Like like is anything going to happen? Or I assume we're all just going to keep going about our merry business, and Rockstar will continue not paying taxes in the UK. No, I mean like uh, former Prime Minister David Cameron got embroiled in the Panama Papers, which released very shortly before the 2015 general election, and basically had him kind of associated with some very dodgy tax things himself yeah, still won the election cares. nobody gives a shit um like and i think i think that's going to be the same the same with rockstar like they're an insanely successful company um they're completely unaccountable like a bit like valve because they're so successful and they just do their one thing and they do it really well um they don't need to speak to the press they just they get to set the terms of engagement so if you say hey why have you been paying your taxes they just don't say anything um, because they so don't, what you're they saying don't is that to. one of the Hauser brothers might end up as your next prime minister. <laughs> I mean, it's not impossible. As, as a terrifying thought Would as that is. Would it be an improvement? I don't think the Hausers 
visit the UK very much. <laughs> uh, but also, I would say I'd say this as well that you know, that as much as I'm sure these kinds of figures make people wince in uh, organisations like Yuki and Tiger, who represent the British industry. Neither of the like organisations like that. They do not want to see Rockstar not be a huge part of the British industry as well. Um, the fact that GTA Five is made in this country is a big thing for the British industry, and I guess this speaks to what you were just saying, Hayden. Like they are, Rockstar is kind of untouchable on these matters because it does deliver like the single biggest IP franchise, single product in the games industry, and. Is big, you know, and then that is a that is a big thing for any country in which it's made. So they do they do kind of hold every single ace here. That's the thing. Like even if consumers are outraged, which most of them, I don't really think care. Um, I even saw a few people kind of commenting that like, well, it's it's not technically illegal, so why does it matter? And it's like, okay, it's not technically illegal, but <laughs> the people the people this kind of stuff the kind of comments you do get on this stuff just makes you realise yeah. oh that's really easy <laughs> thing, you know. You really think that, that much tax money isn't important to the way a country operates or how fair a system is. It's absolutely ridiculous. Exactly, and you know, like Amazon is still the biggest company in the world, doesn't pay its taxes in the UK, Starbucks doesn't pay its taxes in the UK, like all these companies all over the world, it's just what are we going to do? We're we going to boycott GTA 6? Like, a few people might on principle, but... I'm pretty sure a story came out today where, like, the casino update had the highest number of users by some metric or something ever for GTA 5. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think anyone's boycotting GTA. <laughs> exactly. That's because people love gambling because it's really compelling. <laughs> <laughs> so people love it. Uh, and, you know, so yeah, I, I just, I can't see anything of substance or any substantial change coming out of it. I think it's, like, I think it's an important news story because it just highlights kind of how companies like this think they can get away with it and i mean they can but as long as we keep on like trying to hold them to accountable maybe maybe in like a thousand years like something something good will come from it the Fortnite World Cup has just concluded and the winner, oh gosh, I am going to mispronounce all these names. I am so sorry. I'm doing my best. Uh, the winner was Kyle uh, Buka Gearsdorf, uh, taking home a three, $3 million prize. Um, and the duo's winners were Emil Nerox Berg, Bergquist Peterson and David Aqua Wang. Uh, they won $8.5 million each. Um, total prize pool was $30 million. Every competitor who made it there took home $50,000 $50, at least. Um, Tournament was really popular. Over nineteen thousand attendees there in person. Whole bunch of viewers on Twitch and YouTube. I, the whole thing was just absolutely massive. Hallmark esports event. Um, but as Matt brought up to me a little bit earlier, um, this does kind of beg the question of how sustainable all of this is. Uh, what do y'all think? Not. <laughs> <laughs> and it basically sums it okay. up, right? Yeah. yeah. Right. It's. I. I think. Epic. Epic has so much money. They just have so much Fortnite money, and they can they can do things like this. And it's it's great right now. Like it's great that we're having these big esports events that people like and that people can participate in. Um, it's great that they're doing all these other things with it, um, with F Epic Game Store and things like that. But it, it's not going to last forever. And I just kind of wonder what the plan is at that point for all these things they're doing. 
there are some signs for for Fortnite in particular. It's huge, but there are uh, a number of signs that it's it's losing steam. Um, Sony, in their last uh, financials, said that their their earnings were down in part because uh, sales of of stuff from Fortnite in particular had had been declining. Uh, on the like South Korean uh, cafe internet cafe charts uh, that that interpret i believe just started running um all the battle royal games are down and and uh fortnite has been down for for a number of months now and it's it's just kind of like still huge still massive but it's it's tapering off in such a way that like makes me think this isn't just sort of a a seasonal blip kind of thing the way a normal you know professional sport might have during the year but like it it reads to me more like a phenomenon that is in decline like still near the peak but like i don't i don't see how i don't necessarily see how this becomes the sort of thing that you know people are doing 5 10 15 years down the line yeah i'm also looking right now uh, at streamlabs's uh, quarter 2 report they do uh, reports on viewership across twitch and youtube and fortnite viewership has been in basically like like a slow steady decline it it peaked uh in q2 of 2018 and it's kind of slowly been dipping since um but yeah it's not it's not getting bolstered in any way and that's what happens to games right like like there's a big surge when they come out and then they decline but that's just like kind of inevitable right but then that's i think that's that isn't that isn't that a cool question though because i think a lot of the esports well, I, I don't know. Someone with someone who maybe watches more esports than me can, can tell. I, I've always wondered why there was this idea that game, like a single game would be popular as an esport for twenty years. I've never really understood that. Starcraft. Well, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's. The I mean, is is that kind of what everyone is is looking at? They they see that Starcraft or Counter Strike has had ridiculous legs, and then they think, well, why can't this be you know an annual sport they kind of map it to that traditional sports model in their minds and and say like yeah we could do that because if you you know it's like owning the nba or the nfl would be i guess i guess the thing with counter-strike and um starcraft is like they have sort of tournaments um i don't really know what they're like with leagues or anything like that but if you look like the overwatch league that's like a full league with seasons and transfers and huge sponsorships and i feel like i feel it's very hard to kind of replicate that traditional sports structure for a video game uh because partly because of like the amount of hours people can spend playing a video game like if you play like football like do you spend 12 hours a day playing football if you're like a professional footballer i just feel like burnout and kind of the tedium of it is perhaps it's easier to set in and something like Fortnite as well is it has no like all they do to really update it is like cosmetics and then sort of fun events there's no kind of like ever-changing meta that you get with something like League of Legends where they release a new champion and then that changes how like the entire game works on a competitive level so that keeps it just constantly refreshed so every season there is a new like flavor of the month and Fortnite, it's, I mean, it's more or less the same game as it's kind of 
been since it first exploded, as far as I'm aware. I would argue I with that just a little bit. I mean, I'm not... I've played a little bit of Fortnite. I'm not a huge Fortnite person, but they. I'm pretty sure they just had a seasonal update today where they put mechs in, and I don't know if that actually... Inf- okay. Like, how badly... <laughs> I don't know how much that influences the metagame. I, I don't play the metagame of Fortnite, but they do seem to be making, like like continual updates to the game in, in not not certainly in big ways like adding new characters to to a game um, like Apex Legends or Overwatch um, but but little incremental changes that at least keep I, I mean it, again it won't, it won't do it forever games decline naturally on their own anyway but th- they are doing a pretty good job of sustaining interest over time for what they can do I wonder if that actually works against the idea of it being sustainable long term because when it when you're depending on constantly changing up the formula you're you're going to run into changes that people don't like and you're going to turn more of them off when you when you have something more like traditional sports it's not it's not changes to the formula necessarily that keep coming pe- keep people coming back year after year it's sort of the associations that they have with teams and it's new generations of talent that bring new things to the game that seemed impossible to, to you know, to people that were watching just previously, like a, a constantly escalating ability to do the thing. Right. They don't change the I rules think. to baseball every year to keep interest in it. <laughs> they should, though. Baseball's different. They need to change that. Well, yeah, I mean, it's one of the most boring spectacles. <laughs> but, uh, but no, but I mean, on that point, because I, I was, you know, try, was going to interject with this on a couple of occasions prior, but, you know, I mean, I, 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 I watch football, soccer for the, uh, for the, the North American listeners out there. Um, and the thing that keeps football, soccer interesting isn't the sport, it's the players. Um, and as Brendan said, the way those players change can, can kind of change and evolve tactically and so on and so forth. But really, it really is the players. I mean, for, the reason why football is has become more popular than it ever has been in the past is because it's now it's more personality-driven than it ever was before. Um, I think that, that people within esports are looking toward a future where the players will be these equivalent stars to a LeBron James or Cristiano Ronaldo or you know, insert mega famous sports star from, you know, Rafa Nadal, Roger Federer, whoever. But we are, I mean, I'm not big enough on esports to, 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 to know whether it's heading in that direction yet. Maybe one of you can, can kind of inform me on that. But, like, but that, that, is, that is really vital to sustaining a popularity of a sport. And like, you know, the last major rule changes in, in football were made decades ago. You know, they don't really change the game, but the game does change based on the people involved. And I do think that they are leaning that direction, right? Because the popularity, the people who play esports are also almost all the time Twitch streamers or YouTube personalities as well. And they're people that they don't just compete. They also have these, you know, personal streams that they do where they have their fans who show up and watch them and are entertained by those specific people. I mean, Ninja, I wouldn't, I I don't know what his involvement in actual competitive Fortnite is, but the man has attracted people by playing Fortnite. Like that is what he does. But I think the problem that esports has to contend with is the fact that someone like Ninja or somebody like, I presume the people who won this uh, Fortnite World Cup, um, they can play Fortnite very well, but it's not like, if I'm a really talented soccer or football player, 
that talent, I mean, I could maybe go to another sport and do decently well in it, um, you know, just because I already have a, a certain level of athleticism, but I'm not automatically going to be like extremely talented in that other sport just because, you know, I was really good at the one sport. But with something like Fortnite, I'm going to jump into another Battle Royale game or another game that involves like shooting or something. And I'm already going to have like the base level of skills where I could play it really, really well. And it's easy enough for me to switch games depending on what the flavor of the month is and what people are interested in. So I think that's maybe also a problem that, um, you know, esports is going to have to contend with, with the fact that even though they might be building it around these personalities, it's it's harder to build that, build it around both a personality and a specific game when the landscape of games is changing so constantly. One of my big concerns about esports is just the way talent uh, appears to the viewer. Like, if I go see you know lebron james at his at his height when he was you know a, a little bit younger uh i i don't need to know much about basketball to see that like this this guy is amazing and he's making everyone else on the court look silly and he's just clearly a step above whatever else is happening and i can be impressed by that and i can just be completely blown away by it even if i'm not following basketball very closely with esports it, it reminds me of like um any any sufficiently advanced technology will always come across as magic and with esports it's like any sufficiently skilled uh player in a video game always comes across as cheating to me like when i look at what people do with with fortnite and and the way they build stuff and and I can't tell like if this is a uh, a video clip that has been sped up Benny Hill style, or that's just the way this person plays the game. Like I look at that and I can kind of you know intellectually I can understand like wow this person is amazing at what they are doing, but it doesn't it doesn't really resonate with me. I, it doesn't feel the same as watching you know LeBron James plow through an entire team of people. It doesn't help that some uh, of them might actually that. be cheating i mean not probably not the people that won i'm not like accusing <laughs> them of cheating but like the the first week of the world cup competition over 200 fortnite world cup prize winners were caught cheating 206 it looks like well, like <laughs> yeah, to, yeah i want to build on what, what brendan said because like that that really resonates with me i was going to make some of the point but like when i was in secondary school high school um i, I knew nothing about basketball but I, one of my friends had a video of Michael Jordan playing, and it it was amazing to watch um, because uh, like fit, like physic like feats of physical athleticism resonate in a way that doesn't require knowledge to do so. And I'm always reticent to say this point because it makes me feel like I'm just being an old man and not getting what esports is, and and that probably is the case. But to what Brendan said, there definitely is. You can you can show people like a clip of a sport being played sport being played exceptionally well and there is a re there is a way that that can resonate in in a way that i'm i don't understand how games ever would because what would you be showing them the game being the game itself or the movement of fingers across a keyboard or what what would be the entry point to being amazed or impressed there um and and is that is that aspect of it what makes you know, regular sports sustainable over decades and decades and even like a century or more in the case of football. Um, that, that's that's a difficult one to know. In all my years, I've only ever gotten that feeling from a video game once. And that was um, 
it was a Street Fighter Three Daigo Daigo match that people, thing. yeah, and and it was it was just like, I wonder how much of that was required me to have played Street Fighter Three a whole bunch and understood how difficult the parry system was and the, the, how exact the timing had to be. Um, but like uh, other than that, I just. I see it and I I can understand sometimes how skilled the player is and how difficult it was what they just did but you know even the 360 no scope sniper rifle headshot kind of thing is just like oh that happened yeah I, cool. I've had a similar experience to the this is wildly not what we're talking about but uh, World of Warcraft's uh, raid race is i think it's going on right now i don't know if it's fi- no it is finished i think um but the 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 people who are raiding mythic they're teams of like 20 people who are working together to bring down a really really challenging boss and it's the hardest content in the game and i'm wa- like watching them do it live like right after the content's come out and having experienced an mmorpg raid before i can look at that and say wow those it, that it takes incredible coordination that you know it's, it's really really difficult to do but kind of like what brendan said i don't know how much of that is kind of predicated on me already knowing how to raid in an MMO. Um, I think maybe sports games in general, like, you know, NBA, NHL games like that, maybe have a slightly better chance of succeeding in esports, both because they have kind of that seasonality where the updates every year are not drastic. It's just, you know, it's a new game, but it's still played the exact same way. Again, we're not changing the rules of hockey or football or anything. Um, And so, you know, players can, you know, jump from one to the other very, very easily every single year. Um, But also they're more accessible for viewers. Like I... I don't, I, I don't know a ton about, you know, actual athletic sports, really, but I know, I know the basic rules of basketball, and so if I'm looking at an NBA 2K game that's being played um, as an eSport, I can look at that, and I can, you know, effectively understand what's happening in front of me. Yeah, well, I do wonder, like, about, uh, I know nothing about the history of sports, but if there was, like, a period in the history of, in the history of sporting competition where there were just new sports being invented every six months... <laughs> And someone throws a new sport, and then we're like, "Let's ha- let's have a go at making this a global phenomenon." But that's kind of what happens with games, you know. Like we we there, there's a crop of sports that are popular, and they don't get added to very much. Whereas with games, there's always a new game that can come, and effectively, and at the moment, we are in a situation where effectively eat the lunch of all of the other sports, the esports that are trying to be big. Um, so Apex Legends would be an example of a game that I think when it launched, you might have thought, "Well, this is." This could be a contender for Fortnite, but then, like in the most recent EA investor call, they said that they're forecasting bookings of, of around the same amount as The Sims 4 this year. So, from being potentially a new esport to being nothing at all within about three months. Well, not nothing at all. You know what I mean? But nothing, nothing that is going to looks like it would have any chance of becoming sustainable 10, 15, 20 year esport. Um, and that's then that's from one of the most bright starts you can possibly imagine. So we're in we're in a position where uh, no matter how established you look, and, and maybe I think maybe League of Legends is the only one that feels of, of the last of this new explosion of esports that feels like it could be around in twenty years time. I don't know if I, anyone has any thoughts about that. I, I've, I've like as a recover as a recovered League of Legends player, um, like I don't <laughs> play anymore because I mean I just sunk too much of my life into that, like. It's part of the appeal is that it is constantly updated and there is always new new champions and new items and new metas. Like it always feels pretty fresh. Like every every new patch update just changes the game entirely. Um which is, you know, quite cool because it doesn't get stale, but also like I mean, 
it was also one of the things that kind of ultimately pushed me away from it. Uh, it was like a new champion came in and they did this whole overhaul of the items. And I was like, I don't understand what this game is anymore. I used to understand it and now it's just a, a different game. I, what, what the hell is this? And I kind of tried to get back into it for a little bit and it just it it just changed so dramatically in one patch. And I was like, I don't, I don't really know if I can bother it anymore. Um, I I used to be into uh, Magic the Gathering and I took a couple years off and then when I went back and took a look at what the cards were like like, I don't even know what most of these mechanics do this this was me taking Uh, like a month off from the game like I just had a busy month I came came back it was like the new season patch it was like you know the whole new season I was like great I looked at it I, I don't know what any of this is and I cannot be bothered to relearn it and kind of as much as I like League of Legends I just it just kind of crept away from me yeah, and I guess that's, that is the, you know, it, and I, I do wonder if in the fullness of time that the comparison between what we net, what we call esports and sports is going to prove to be a useful one, but that isn't the case with sports, right? Like if you, if you, if you used to watch football, you can come back in 10 years and you can watch football and you know exactly what's going on. The only thing you won't know is who's actually kicking the ball around. Um, that, that's a kind of a, that, that's a thing that I think video games may never actually be able to replicate. Seems like a good place to call it a day. Uh, you can always go back and listen to previous episodes of this podcast on all good podcasting platforms, and you can and should get your daily dose of news and insight into the world behind games at gamesindustry.biz. 